Um, our scripture reading this morning is Esther 8, 3 through 10, 3. Um, and while you're turning to that passage, let me just say at Village, as you know, the Bible is central to everything we do. It's God's primary way of speaking to his people, and it shapes everything that we believe and everything that we do. The Bible is God's word, his gift to us, the church. Because of this, after I finish reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And we will all respond together, thanks be to God. Um, also, if you don't own a Bible or need an extra one, there's one on the back shelf. Um, please feel free to grab it, take it home. Um, but yeah, here we go. We're going to jump into Esther 8, 3 through 10, 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? The king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regards to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written, according to all, that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters. To, then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses, that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or any province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to, were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, uh, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great uh, golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear the Jews had fallen on them. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out 
on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew, uh, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them as they did, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the capital itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspaltha and Paratha and Adalia and Aridatha and Parmashta and Arisai and Aridai and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel... The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then, uh, what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow to also, also to do according to this day's edict, and let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. For the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from the enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. For it was the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and the fourteenth day they rested and made that day a, feasting and of, uh, a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who lived in rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as, uh, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as, the month that, uh, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from gladness, days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast pur, that is lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it, came, uh, when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, therefore they called these days Purim, for after the term pur, uh, therefore, because of all the things in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them 
that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew have given uh, ha, Mordecai the Jew have written uh, authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the king, kingdom of Ahasuerus, in the in the words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they obligated themselves and their offspring. With regards to their fasts and their lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land on the, and on the coastlands of the sea, and all of the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the king of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, everyone. Um, it really is uh, a joy to be with you once again in, in Village South this morning. Um, to any of you who don't know me, um, my name's Nick. I'm one of the elders um, in Village here. Uh, Myself, along with my, my wife Sarah and our two girls, uh, are, are part of Village East, so some of you may not recognize us, but it's really great to be here with you this morning. Uh, I say this every time I'm here, uh, and it's because I mean it. Um, just being here with you all is, is a blessing uh, for me, because as I look at you, I see a picture of and I see evidence of, of God's grace. Um, and those of you that I don't recognize and don't know, um, as, as God adds to this church plant in number, um, and also in those of you that I do know um, and that I've known for a long time, um, as I see your, your faithfulness and your perseverance for the sake of the gospel. So, so thank you for that. Uh, also, I want to bring greetings um, from all your brothers and sisters in Village East. Um, and just once again to remind you and assure you of our, our love for you all and uh, our, our continued prayers for you. So please be, be assured of that, be encouraged by that, um, and be, just, just know that we're continuing to pray for you and all that God is doing in and through you and here in South Belfast. Before we start, I'd like to thank Lauren for, for the reading this morning. Um, I don't think too many of you would have envied the task of, of reading that passage this morning, but you made light work of it, Lauren, so thank you. Um, and like all the readings in this series so far, they've been long. Um, there's been lots of big and, and sort of antiquated names in there. Uh, but as always, it's important um, to read these passages in, in their entirety. So let's turn to God's word this morning, um, and, and as it's been read from Esther chapter 8 through to the conclusion of, of uh, chapter 10 and the conclusion of this book. This is the first time I've been asked to close out a series in Village, so God willing it won't be the last, but let's, let's see how we go here anyway. Um, so far in Esther, we've enjoyed every episode or, or, or chapter um, as it's developed a storyline um, and, and contributed to the, the wider overarching plot and narrative of this book. As we turn to Esther chapters 8 to 10, we're entering the final episode, the season finale, if you will, and the conclusion of this great narrative. And in a story that has already had sex, ruthless ambition, corruption, xenophobia, persecution, and impalings, to name a few things, this is when it's about to get really Game of Thrones-esque. 
We've seen in previous chapters that Esther is a book that has required a slightly different approach um, to how we usually handle Scripture, and so you'll be glad to know that we won't be working through all three of these chapters verse by verse today. Um, We'd be here a while. Rather, instead, we're going to continue to just look broadly at what's taking place in this narrative uh, and in these chapters and what God, although unseen, is doing in and through and for his covenant people. And in doing so, we're going, to, we're going to see a few things along the way which still relate to us today very much as his covenant people here in Belfast. So let me pray once more for us as we turn to God's words. Heavenly Father, as we approach this, this passage, um, we just ask for your help. Uh, we just pray that your spirit would uh, give us ears to hear and to know your voice, um, that your spirit would soften our hearts, um, and that you would use me as, as inadequate as I am um, to speak only what is true and what is good and what is uh, edifying to your church and glorifying to you, God. We ask these things in your name. It's been nothing short of incredible uh, just this year to see the rollout across the world of the COVID-19 vaccines. Yes, there's been some hiccups along the way. There's, there's been disparity among countries um, in terms of how many vaccines have been available. But the sheer speed at which God's common grace um, through modern medicine has been able to provide a vaccine to a virus that only manifested itself 18 months ago has been incredible. But I think where the magnitude of this, this, um, this, this feat is most seen, I believe, is on an individual level. When we see and hear the difference that this has made to people's lives. Across the world, one of the most common responses among individuals as we, as we seem to be coming out of this pandemic is that of relief. Maybe we can relate to that ourselves in terms of, of just the, the aspects of our life that we've been able to get back in the past few months. But in fact, in a recent UNICEF interview, um, a high school worker in Bangladesh described this relief of being such that it felt like a festival, a festival of life and a festival of hope. I'm sure some of us can relate to this feeling to a certain extent, but I don't think any of us have ever had quite such an emotional response to to getting over the flu or or shaking off a cold or something like that. And that, of course, is because when COVID-19 appeared in our day-to-day consciousness just over a year ago, it posed a very real and a very great threat to human life. We have, of course, seen the effects over this past year um, and, 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 and with that, the great threat and danger um, that, that has come from such a devastating virus. But we've also seen the great relief that has come for so many people around the world when an apparent way out of this pandemic has been provided for us. I want, to bear, I want us to bear in mind this morning, as we look at this passage, the link between great danger and great relief. When great danger passes, it brings great relief. Please keep your Bibles open at this passage. This morning we'll be moving through and reading quickly, but please do follow along as we do so. Our last installment, as we read, chapter 7 ended on a high point. The end of chapter 7 brings a huge sigh of relief as we see Haman, the main aggressor towards God's people, hanged. And I think the poetic irony of this moment stirs up a very natural reaction in us as humans. We all, as we read this, I think, feel that Haman had this coming. He deserved this or that this was justice done. And this response from us speaks to our natural ingrained desire for justice in a fallen world so often lacking it. A 
And that comes from the fact that we, as, as Nathan alluded to earlier, are made in the image of a perfectly just God. Haman had, had planned to hang Mordecai on these gallows, which had been constructed stories high. But just as quickly as Haman had risen to favor with King Ahasuerus, here his world starts to unravel quite spectacularly. By the end of chapter 7, Haman is hung on the very gallows intended for Mordecai. And like all good dramas, this sets us up with the cliffhanger. This is the, the point in the story that as we're watching it, um, is so tense that it has us off our seats and pacing the floor. Because although the poetic justice and the ironic reversal of Haman's execution was shocking enough and was undoubtedly a victory for Mordecai and for Esther in chapter 7, there was still a major problem and a major threat to God's people. Haman had been hanged, but his edict still stood, and the outcome for God's people still appeared uncertain. Now, I know we read from verse 3 this morning, but we're going to just backtrack just a couple of verses quickly and look at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 8. Verse 1 reads, On that day King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. As we pick up the story here in chapter 8, we see that everyone's circumstances have changed. Ahasuerus, Esther, Mordecai, and Haman. We already know what's happened to Haman, but here we see that Mordecai has risen to a position of power and popularity and favor with the king the very position that until five minutes ago had been occupied by Haman. Not only has Haman's position been relinquished, but his property too. We see that all of Haman's estate becomes Esther's, something that was fairly common practice in the ancient world, that the, when convicts were executed, their estate was given over to the crown. And then we see Esther, who, who we've previously seen as, as timid and cowering away in the earlier chapters of the book um, from her Jewish identity. She now reveals to the king her relationship to Mordecai in verse 1. What we see here is the type of grand reveal and unhappy family reunion and gathering um, that we see in Genesis when Joseph brings Jacob before Pharaoh, and, and all seems to be going well at this point. King Ahasuerus then takes his signet ring in verse 2, which was, was probably barely cold from, from being stripped from Haman at this point, um, and this, this sign of, of, of royal authority previously given to Haman is now given to Mordecai. Again, this is another picture of the tables being turned and the poetic justice of the one who sought to destroy the Jews now being stripped of that power and authority and that power and authority being given to the one who he sought to destroy. Esther then gives the estate over to Mordecai in verse 2 and we'll see very quickly why she wasn't concerned personally about this. Despite her personal victory, and Mordecai's rise to a position of favor with the king. All is not well. Esther, who we've just seen demonstrate a newfound boldness in her Jewish identity, again appears to be an entirely different Esther um, in verse 2. The Esther who in the earlier chapters had been so fond of makeup and, and of rich living, seemingly couldn't care less about the fortune that she had just come into. And this was because her people were still under threat. He'd gone from self-preservation in the early chapters to leading the cause of her people from the front line. Esther, at this point, was not only concerned for her own salvation, but that of the Jews 
of the Jews being her own people. And as we know, as we've seen in, in the earlier chapters, the threat to these people came from the royal edict calling for their destruction. And why this is so problematic is that we know from various accounts in the Old Testament that an edict passed under Medo-Persian law could not be revoked. Esther knew that for her people to be saved, the irrevocable would need to be revoked. And this, that, that's, that's the recap done. That's us, that's us up to, to where we are here today. You'll be pleased to know. But, but this is where we get to the main event of this morning's passage, the turning point of the whole book. This is where we see the great reversal take place. The tables are turned and we see a plot twist for the ages. Verses 3 to 8, Esther pleads for her people. Verse 3, then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he, had advised, that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Or how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, and in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. Once again, this is, this is this new, entirely different Esther. She's taken up the cause of her people with zeal, and she's not going to let the issue go. Esther takes the initiative and does something that just a few chapters was unthinkable. She knows the risk that's involved in approaching the king without invitation, and yet she goes anyway. She weeps, she begs, and she implores the king against the evil scheme of Haman and his plan against the Jews. Esther, in her plea, shows all the emotion and conviction that she had previously kept hidden. Previously, we had seen Haman fall at Esther's feet, concerned for himself, and here we see Esther fall at the king's feet, asking him to revoke the irrevocable. Verse 4, the king extends the scepter. And we don't know why King Ahasuerus did this. We don't know his motives whether he was moved by Esther's emotion or perhaps he knew he needed to keep Esther and Mordecai sweet. But this action is the king granting her the right to give her plea and to be heard by the king. And had he not done this, Esther herself could have been killed for approaching the king without invitation. But she pulls it together and she plays on her relationship with the king. And in verse six, her true desire is expressed. She is out of danger, but this is not enough. God's People are on the brink of genocide, and from her new position of influence, she's not prepared to stand idly by. But see that her plea is still cautious. She's aware of the fickle nature of the king, and she approaches gingerly with this, if it pleases the king, if, if, if maybe this could happen. Um, this reminded me of our, our eldest daughter, Grace, um, and, and when she approaches and, and asks us for something, and you can almost know by the tone of her voice and, and just how she approaches us, um, if it's something that she knows she's probably not going to get or probably shouldn't have. Um, and I think we see that here in, in Esther. Um, she, she's, she approaches gingerly. But Esther was also fully aware of the law and fully knew full well that edicts could not be revoked. 
And so she asks, not that the edict be revoked, but that those letters that have been issued revoke those, recall those. Yes, the edict can't be revoked, but at least let's keep it quiet. Let's not let words spread too far. Call the couriers back. But then in verses 78, the king responds to Mordecai and Esther together as one. And Ashoheres has a bright idea. As he's done before, he lets someone write another edict. This guy loved edicts, couldn't get enough of them. And you would think that after this debacle with Haman, he'd be cautious about making a similar move. But no, for whatever reason, be it his ego, be it his desire for popularity or his fear for Mordecai's new popularity, King Ahasuerus plays the ultimate yes man. Ahasuerus sets up edict versus edict. May the best edict win. And so Mordecai acts accordingly and follows the king's suggestion in verses 9 to 14, and the decree is issued. Verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at the time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters mounted by couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa. Now note the wording here. We're not going to spend too much time on it, but if, if you did turn back to chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, here you would see a, a series of direct parallels between Haman's first edict and this second one, albeit in reverse. The tables have very much been turned And the narrator uses the exact same language for both edicts. Destroy, kill, annihilate. Both edicts were written in the king's name and sealed with his signet ring. Both edicts were handled exactly the same and the narrator describes them in identical language to make his point clear and draw our attention to this reversal taking place. But the second edict nullified the first. The first edict says, go after the Jews on this appointed day. And the second edict says, Jews, fight off anyone who comes after you on that day. Defend yourselves, destroy, kill, and annihilate. And it is this second edict, giving the Jews the right to gather and defend, that we will see prevents their annihilation. Verse 14, the edict is delivered and sent out across the kingdom with the same pomp and circumstance that the first one had. For he was given out at the citadel in Susa, making all the, the, the religious and political bigwigs of the day aware of exactly what was unfolding. And then in verses 15 to 17, we see the Jews celebrating. 
Verse 15, then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And so we see this, this wider, great reversal that takes place in the book of Esther continue to unfold through all of these little mini-reversals and, and, and parallels taking place. There's three things that I want us to note from this great reversal this morning. The first thing that I want us to take note of is that the great reversal brought great joy. Imagine the reaction among the Jews to Haman's first decree. And contrast that with the reaction found here in chapter 8. First, there was grave danger and grave threat. Then there was great joy once there was a sign that that danger was passing. We see that link so clearly here of great danger giving, away, giving way to great relief and a response of great joy. So in chapter 3, that God's people are found to be in confusion and in despair. There was mourning, weeping, fasting, and lamenting. Fast forward to chapter 8, we see joy, light, gladness, and honor. Mordecai previously couldn't go before the king, but here he's wearing royal robes. Previously, the city cried with a loud and bitter cry of despair and confusion, but now there's celebration and joy. Susa is rejoicing at this decree. Jews threw parties and declared holidays, and we even see many converting to the God of Israel. Many became Jews out of fear of the Jews and an awareness of the hand of God so obviously and apparently on his people. Fear that only God could have done what had taken place and that nothing against the Jews would prosper for their destruction. God was going to protect his people and this faithfulness and his faithfulness in this was so apparent. Now, only God can orchestrate such reversals as this. And only God can produce the joy that comes as a byproduct of that. This is true in this story, but it's also true in our lives. It's true in our homes and it's true in our city. Only the unseen God who is at work in these great absences and apparently coincidental events. God's unseen hand in the lives and the affairs of the Jews in this story brought otherwise unexplained and unspeakable joy. And the same should be the case for us today. We, as God's covenant people today, have experienced a great reversal in our own lives. We, who were once dead in trespasses and sin, but by God's grace and mercy towards us, have been made alive in Christ. We have stood facing the danger of sin and eternal separation from God. But because of Jesus' substitutionary work on our behalf, that danger has passed. And Because of this, we should stand out as men and women marked by joy. The psalmist writes in Psalm 16, in his presence is fullness of joy. The message of the angel in Luke is that I've come to bring you good news of great joy. Joy is the mark of the Christian life, and we should be marked by a joyful celebration of what Christ has done for us, and that he is sovereign, and that he is in charge, and that nothing circumstantial can take away the hope or the security that we have in him. C.S. Lewis, who described himself um, as, as a reluctant convert 
at the time um, of his conversion, entitled his, his, his initial autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Such was his experience of life with Jesus despite conditions, despite circumstances, and despite adversity. Alistair Begg comments that the flavor of Christianity is joy. That we can say as those bought by the blood of Jesus that even through sadness, through pain, through despair, depression, cancer, death, even when all my options are done and there is nothing left, still I have joy unspeakable. And by way of disclaimer, that, that might not look like happiness as we know it all the time, but it is an unrelenting joy that goes so much deeper than that. And we see further in verse 17 here that when God does something that only he can do like this, the world takes notice and takes notice of the joy of his people. Only God could do something like this. And it is the testimony of this that shakes people up and turns the hearts of many towards him, as we see in verse 17, when many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. God still does this today even against the, the backdrop of the most intense persecution and hostility towards the Christian faith, God is still growing his church. We in Village here, we're, we're blessed to be part of the Acts 29 Global Church Planting Network. One of the pastors we're, we're privileged to partner with is, is Antoine, um, who pastors a church in Turkey along with his wife, Citadel, and their two boys. And to hear the stories of Muslims in Turkey previously hostile towards God and his church, putting their trust in Jesus, following him, and joining a persecuted church. It's such a reversal that only God could be responsible for it. What is the mark of this church and these believers in the face of persecution? Joy. Unspeakable joy. So brothers and sisters, the challenge must be for us. Does our life display that kind of joy? And if not, why does it not? Are we placing our hope in other things? Have we not realized the reality of what we are being saved from in the reversal of the gospel? That's something for us just to think about beyond this morning. We've seen here that out of this great reversal came great joy. Next, as we turn to chapter 9, I want us to note that in this great reversal, we see great relief. As we see God avenging his covenant people. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Here we see the turning of the tables continue and the poetic justice continuing to play out. And we learn that those who still desired to destroy the Jews would not prevail. And the victory that was secured by God in his sovereignty when the edict was passed was, was here granted. And as we've seen continually through this book, God's hand had been on every single event leading up to this point, And he was going to ensure victory for the Jews. Once again, God's name is not mentioned, but he's still accomplishing his purposes. He's still at work and he's still speaking in the silences. Verse 2, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought them harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Here we see the Jews being given mastery over those who hated them. And if we turn back to chapter 3, verse 7, we see that this takes place on exactly the same day that the opposite is supposed to occur. 
The language that we see here used is the same language that we see in Exodus. It's the language of the triumph of God's people. No enemy against them can stand. Verses three to four, we learn that Mordecai's star continues to rise. He was feared and he was elevated. He was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces and his greatness increased as a wonderful advocate and defender of his people. And then in verses five to 10, we see how the battle unfolded. We see the Jews enact justice on those who would attack them. We see them do what they pleased to those who hated them. We see accounts given first of the killings in Susa and then throughout all the provinces. We then see Esther bring another request to the king Ahasuerus. He requests another, another day's killings in the knowledge that more enemies remain. We then see another reversal when Esther requests that the ten sons of Haman, previously exalted, who have now been killed, she requests that they be lifted onto the gallows for all to see. Now, these are some really brutal pictures, and pictures that can definitely offend our 21st century sensibilities. But it's important to remember that these actions were carried out under an edict of self-defense. And we also have to read into this in its original context, that being of Old Testament law and Old Testament retribution. An eye for an eye and a punishment that met the crime in equal measure. Now there's so much more that we could, we could say about this section, but the one thing that I want us to notice here today is the relief and the rescue of God's people. Great reversal brings great relief. The second edict had made a way for the Jews to be saved. It gave them opportunity to gather and defend. And we know from this side of things that God in his sovereignty was going to secure that victory. But until this point, the enemy was still at large. Notice that the second edict in chapter 8 was passed in the third month. These events don't take place until the twelfth month. And so there was a nine-month period when there was wide knowledge across the kingdom of both edicts. And both Jews and Persians had the opportunity to pick a side. All of us alive today also live in a, in a liminal period like this. The two edicts in the book of Esther here are absolutes, and there was no way around them. But we today also live between absolutes. The absolute of the law and the knowledge that the wages of sin are death. and The absolute of the gospel, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that anyone who believes in him might have eternal life. In Christ the edict of sin and of separation from God has been reversed and the rescue has been made possible. But we still live in the time before this rescue and God's kingdom is fully consummated. And while that time continues, there's still time for those outside of his kingdom and outside of his people to repent. Now there's a couple of differences here because unlike in Esther, we don't have a knowledge of the predetermined day and hour that this will take place. We don't know when we'll die. We don't know when Jesus will return. And I wonder for, for both Christians and non-Christians, would it make a difference to our lives today if we knew that information? If you're not a Christian and you've yet to repent and put your faith in Jesus, don't delay that any longer. Don't take that risk this morning. Because there's another difference. Because for those of us who on that day will be found in Christ, we know what the outcome is going to be. In the wider narrative of the Bible and God's, God's redemptive history of the world, the battle is already won. God is sovereign, and Jesus, through his life, his death, and resurrection, has bought the victory for his people. So yes, we, we do live in a time when the enemy is still at large for now, 
when we will face persecution, resistance, abuse, and hostility. But we can persevere because we know the outcome. We know how the story ends, and we know who is in charge, as Alan explained last week. And just as the Jews were equipped under this edict with the right to assemble and defend, so too are we equipped with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to persevere and endure until such times as the enemy is defeated and the rescue is complete. There will be trial. There will be strife. There will be pain. There will be temptation in this life. The Bible is really clear on that. But as verse 2 reads, God's covenant people will have the ultimate victory. In this great reversal, and in the great reversal of the gospel, there is great rescue. And even in times when we perceive God to be absent, we can know that he is not, and we can know that he has placed us there for a purpose. Now, our story might be different. We, in this life, might not be delivered from attack, from sickness, from the effects of this world in the same way that the Jews were in Esther. There's no guarantee that we won't face things that are uncomfortable at best and frightening at worst. What Esther does tell us is that God is with us regardless and he is using these experiences. The mystery of God's providence is exactly that. It's a mystery. But the underlying reality is this. God knows what is best for his children. He knows you, he loves you, and he cares for you. He is rich in compassion and he is vast in power. Psalm 50, verse 15, the Lord says that in these times we can call on him in the day of trouble and he will deliver us and we shall glorify him. Verses that I've held dear over the past year or two have been Lamentations 3, verses 22 to 25, which read, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. These are incredible truths, um, and I feel they're only emphasized by what the writer has declared in the 21 verses before it in Lamentations 3, when he speaks of affliction, darkness, bitterness, tribulation, being enchained, unable to escape, desolate, grinding his teeth on gravel, and bereft of peace. All of this, and even more, might be our experience at times in life. and We may feel all of those things. We may feel fearful. But in those times, we can declare with Jeremiah that the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him, and I will know that there is nothing to truly fear. Brothers and sisters, let's not hold to a notion that God's providence and God's presence is dependent on our circumstances and is affected by our circumstances. But Rather, let's live with joy and live certain of our ultimate rescue regardless of our earthly circumstances. May we not change God to fit our picture, but may we instead have faith to trust and accept his picture for our life. Great reversal brings great relief. And finally and very briefly, the great reversal brought great remembrance. In chapters 9, verse 20 onwards, the institution of the festival of Purim. Spontaneous celebration that we saw in verses 18 to 19 is now standardized for the Jews by Mordecai with the intention that the, the natural reaction of thanksgiving and gratitude to God in this moment of great reversal would be captured and would, would live on for generations to come. 
feast is recorded by Mordecai in verse 20, it's accepted by the people in verse 23, and it's confirmed by Esther in verse 30. The Purim comes from the word pur, which means lot or dice, which we've seen earlier in Esther. And it is this name, it's given this name out of recognition for the fact that the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision comes from the Lord. The fate of God's people is not decided by the throw of a dice. Out of response to this deliverance and this reversal, the Jews obligated themselves to the observation of this festival, something which still continues to this day. By all accounts, it sounds quite enjoyable. Um, It's a family occasion. It's theatrical. The kids dress up and reenact the story of Esther. Um, The the children spin these little wooden rattles every time the name of Haman is mentioned to drown out the sound. And they eat these little triangular cookies called hamantash or Haman's ears. Um, That was quite amusing. Um, But the tragedy, of course, is that Jews today, they don't read this story as the foreshadow of their long-awaited final deliverance that we know it to be. Great reversal that we see in the book of Esther was pointing toward the ultimate great reversal of the gospel and of the cross of Christ, which guaranteed our final rescue and the redemption of all Christ's people at the end of history when the devil and all his forces will be defeated. Esther is this courageous mediator and Mordecai is this righteous man serve only as partial foreshadows of the one who had fulfilled the covenant that God is upholding in the story of Esther. God upholds that covenant by, by preserving his people and keeping them alive so that when the time came to completion, his son would be sent. Through his death, we were granted life. And so we don't ultimately obligate ourselves to a festival or religious practice or tradition, but above everything, we obligate ourselves to Christ and to remembrance of him. We're to live lives marked by joy and certain of our rescue, but we're also to live lives of remembrance, not just for the event that secured this, but for the one who did. We're to remember the cost of the sacrifice paid to secure this for us. And in response, we lay down our lives as a living sacrifice daily for the one who died for our sins. We have seen through this book that God has his hand in every event in our lives. He is just as active in keeping his covenant with us and achieving his purposes when he is unseen as when he is seen and acting miraculously. Even when it seems like nothing is happening, God is at work keeping his promises so that we can be confident and assured as we read this book that nothing in this world, nothing in our lives happens except through him and by his will for our good and for his glory. Those who have faced great danger feel great relief. Those who are forgiven much love much. Those who have faced an edict of separation from God rejoice at what we have in Christ. May we be a people marked by joy, May we be confident of our ultimate rescue and may we always give thanks for and remember the one who has achieved this for us and the price that he has paid. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Um, We thank you for the the truth that it speaks. Thank you just for this, this story of Esther and all we have learned about it, all we have learned about you from it over these past weeks. 
thank you that you're sovereign. We thank you that you're in control. Thank you that you love us, God. Thank you that in all things you're at work, fulfilling, fulfilling your, your purposes and your plans for us, for our good and for your glory, Lord. And so our prayer, just as we, as we conclude this series, that we would not try to change you to fit our picture, Instead, that you would give us the faith to trust and accept your picture for our life at all times. We ask these things in your name.